All right, guys, y'all can be seated. Uh, if you want, you don't have a Bible that you can pick up, but there are study guides available to you on those tables over there. There's even a few pens if you want them. I highly recommend them because I am interested in your response on the first one. Uh, as we have come together and we're going to start a new series, and we're calling it Nailed It, all right, and that's why we've got the stickers that are going out. We have the t-shirts that are going out. Some of you did sign up to get a t-shirt for it. Some of you have bought the stickers already. The stickers are five bucks. The t-shirts for a long sleeve is 18 and for a short sleeve is 15. So make sure to buy it so that you can walk around with it, whether it's a sticker or a shirt. Uh, and so we're trying to get that out there, kind of using that as a fundraiser for our student ministry. Uh, how are you guys? Y'all doing okay? Y'all are kind of a little bit dead tonight. So are y'all okay? Are y'all y'all good? Yes. Have y'all made it? Have y'all have y'all come here? Are y'all awake? Yes. Do we need to? No, you're not awake. Yes, some of you are. Yes, kind of. No, yes, maybe. A little bit. I'll tell you what it was. I know what it was. I, I know what it was, Drew. They're just all tuckered out from playing basketball earlier. They're just all tuckered out, the little fellas, the little guys. Don't you think that's what he is? You're just, you're just tired, you old guys. Ava, I got nothing from you just there. This is Ava. While I'm doing that, she's... That's obviously... There's obviously unrepentant sin in your life, Ava. Obviously. No. Okay, so let me start off just a little bit. Uh, I have told this story before. Some of you may have heard it. Uh, for those of you who have, just enjoy the ride again. For those of you who haven't, get ready to go on this journey with me. I have not always been, uh, I have not always been in a Baptist church. Now, always my family or going to Baptist churches or to things like that. But my uncle actually is a Pentecostal uh, pastor. And I went to my uncle's church, and I love my uncle very, very, very much. Um, but while I went to my uncle's church one particular Sunday, I'll never forget, it was, it was one of the first times that I had ever experienced anything like this. And uh, I remember going there, I was a teenager, I was a young teenager at the time. My brother was there with me, and so it was a combination for a lot of bad that could come about. Um, a lot of heckling, a lot of silliness that could go on. But at a Pentecostal church, I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but they do things very differently. They go big, like really big, okay, in the way they act, in the way that they uh, react, in the way that they sing, or the way they play instruments, or whatever they do. It's big, and it's loud, and everything just seems a lot more overblown than the way it is here at our church or the way it is at any other church I'd been to. So I went to my uncle's church and uh, I was experiencing and watching all the things that were going on. And what surprised me most was not the singing. Uh, it was not even um, uh, my uncle preaches very differently than I do or any other preacher I've ever sat under. What surprised me most was at the end, a lady came up. And a lady asked for prayer from my uncle. And so my uncle pulls her up there and, and he 
is talking to her. You know, she's she's whispering in his ear what she her request and and uh, what surprised me. I didn't never seen it done before. But he goes he he goes. All right, he says in Jesus' name. And and now here's the thing: as he started to pray for, her, and it, like I said, everything was bigger. As he starts to pray for, her, I notice two guys from uh, out in the congregation kind of move up, kind of to get in position behind her. And as He's praying for her. He, he all of a sudden says, in Jesus' name, I cast that out. And he hits her on the head, and she falls down. And the two men behind her catch her, and they lay her down. And Uncle, uh, Uncle Barry says, uh, well, he says, she had a, a spirit of, and I can't remember what it was, but she had some sort of evil spirit that was attached to her, and I had just, I just cast that demon out. And uh, at that point, several others from the church start going up there and they start asking to be prayed for and they all get prayed over and bumped and everybody falls out okay and it happens and Jordan and I my brother and if you know my brother you know we're sitting there because we're really trying to be good we're really 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 trying to be good but we're, we're having difficulty we're, we're wanting to laugh but we're trying to be good but this one floored us right here this one got us he goes Steve, that's my dad's name. Steve, come up here. And dad was dealing with something going on with work, some sort of technicality or some sort of drama at work. And he had told my uncle about it because that's what brothers do. And um, my uncle looks at him and he takes him, says, brother, I love you. And then he looks at the congregation and he says, my brother's been dealing with this issue right here. This, this issue has been going on and, and he needs prayer. Hmm. And he starts to pray loud, overblown, big. And at the end of it, he's, he's not going to hit my dad on the head, but at the end of it, he releases. He's got his hands on my dad's shoulder. He goes, Phew. and dad just goes. And walks off. And I mean, my brother and I, we were gone. Like we were so, we were so gone at that moment, okay? Because at that point, <clears throat> at that point, it was a major revelation to us. And really, this is dangerous that I'm saying this if it ever goes out there live. I don't think he ever watches me, but it's dangerous if it ever goes out there live. Uh, but, but here's the thing. The truth of it is, is at that moment, it revealed something to us, Okay? That either, either what was going on wasn't really some sort of supernatural power that was pushing people down. Either, either my uncle was doing something that wasn't real or the people were falling back and it wasn't real. Or my dad was not in the spirit and I have my opinions about where to land on that one. But the reality is, is that we were met, my brother and I were at, met at that moment with a reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Joe knows another story that I might tell you all later on. Um, at that moment, I was met with a reality that sometimes what's told to you by preachers and teachers and sometimes the show that's put on in front of you, sometimes you can't necessarily trust the show sometimes you can't believe even the church and it made me at that point start trying to look in the bible for well where where do we get this idea of, 
of the, the slaying in the spirit? Or is that in the Bible? Is it, is it, is it there? Was my, was my uncle right? Was my dad wrong? Were the people who fell back right or wrong? It made me start looking at that kind of stuff. But it made me ask the question, well, has the church ever taught anything that was wrong or false? I'll ask you the question. Do you think the church has ever taught anything that was wrong or false? Unfortunately, the answer to that question is yes. The church, and so far as I know, as far as I've been at this church, it's never been in the teaching here. Although Brad's come really close. I'm just kidding. The truth is, is that if churches across the nation and across the world, there have often been very, very bad teachings and there have been very poor people who believe those false teachings just because it was said by the church. So I'm going to give you guys about 30 seconds. 30 seconds. And I want you to deal with that first question by yourself on your study guide. Okay, it's going to come up on the screen. It's on your study guide. But this is it. What would you do if the church was teaching you to follow things that weren't in the Bible? I want you guys to take about 30 seconds. I want you to write your response down there. What would your task be? What would your job be? What would you think about it? How would you talk about those things? All right, just for the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and call that. You guys think about that question as we go through our study tonight. But is there anybody who immediately is like, yeah, I, I kind of know what my answer would be. Is there anyone who wants to share it? Casey? Talk, okay, see, see if anyone else picked up on it. Yeah, see if it's maybe, hey, was this just something that was, that was off, you know, one time? Is this a habit? You know, was that kind of thing? All right, what else? Yeah. Okay, so you you would want to go talk. Hey, what was going on there? You know, what was what was you would want to talk to the to the person who said it or to the leadership or something like that. Hey, what was what was going on here? What was it with the teaching there? And if if they couldn't defend it biblically, then you would look to go somewhere else. Anybody else want to share? What the heck was that? <laughs> Shut that down. Everybody look at Anthony. Okay, anybody else have anything they, that they would say that might be different from what Casey or Maria would say? What they said... I'm so sorry. I'm working on it. I'll, I'll get it. I'll, I promise I'll get it. So what if I just started calling you like... Call her Kyrie. 
Kyrie. Kyria. There it is. Kyria. Right, anybody, else, anybody else have anything? Okay, so this is a serious question because here's the thing, guys. I mean, I am getting things all over social media daily by churches that are putting out their false teaching. There are churches that will teach you that you, yes, you, are a little G God. I'm not making that up. There is a very prominent preacher. In fact, he is the preacher of the largest church in our country who says that you can say, I am, and then fill in the blank, and then whatever you say, if you declare it with authority, then you are that thing. You can speak your own reality. Guys, there are people who are saying stuff all over the country, and we have to ask the question, if we are in a church or if we hear a preacher or a teacher or a leader and they say something or they tell us to do something that goes against the Bible, what do we do? Pray. We should absolutely pray about it for certain. But then what do we do with our hands, with our feet? What do we do with our speech? What do we do? Read the word. Absolutely. So let's jump into our teacher, or, or let's, let's, let's look at this. What, is the, what do you think is the commonality between all false teachers? They are false. They are false but what is it, what is it that, that generally, they're man-centered. They man yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so they'll, they'll add things to the gospel, yeah. A lot of the time, this is the way, this is a, an easy way to, 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 to put it, and I, got, I didn't come up with this. John Piper, uh, a very good preacher, he's the one who, who uh, introduced this phraseology to me. But question number two is there, what will a false teacher try to make you focus on? And the answer that's going to come up on the screen is they try to make you focus on gifts instead of the giver, Okay. Now, there are often times that these preachers, and that's not true of every false teacher, but most of them, many of them, the ones that we would encounter, they try to make you focus on the gifts instead of the giver. God has given us good gifts. For example, God has given us um, food. Absolutely. God has given us doctors, uh, nurses who can help us stay healthy, God has given us pleasures even like wealth. There are some people who have great wealth, who love and serve the Lord. Anthony is one of those guys. False teachers will try to get you to focus on the gift that what God really wants you to have is this. Or He wants you to enjoy that. They try to make something else the pedestal other than God. Here's a crazy one. Some preachers, and, I, and I'll say this because we have a very good preacher, a very good pastor at this church. A good pastor is a good gift from the Lord. There are some pastors, though, who try to say that I am the gift that's been given to you. And so they'll try and say, you need to send me money. You need to send me your allegiance. They'll try to point your attention, direct your focus on a gift 
rather than the giver of that gift. Who is the giver of all good gifts? God. Jesus. Yeah. We know that answer. Anyone who tries to take the focus off of Christ and puts it anywhere else in their teaching and in their practice and in the way you should carry out your faith, they are a false teacher. And churches have done that. They've done that for centuries. Specifically, during this week and next week, we're going to be looking at the church as it existed in the 16th century. Okay? Because this is the month of October, some of you, many of you know that this is our Reformation month. This is the month of Reformation. We celebrate what Martin Luther did on October 31st in the year 1517. If you don't know that story, you'll hear it next week. No, not, not Thanksgiving. What Martin Luther did changed the world. But you'll have to wait to hear that story next week. This week, we're going to look at why did he do what he did. And it's all centered around the premise that we've been talking about so far. What if the church teaches you to do things or to follow after things that aren't in the Bible? It's all wrapped up in that question. Why did Martin Luther do what he did? Because that question and the answer to that question was staring Luther right in the face. So let me kind of explain what's going on. We are in the 16th century, which means we're in the 1500s. You guys know how that works, right? What century are we in right now? 21st century, but it's the year 2021. So we're not in the 21s for the 21st century. You get 20s because we're moving forward. So in the 16th century, in the 1500s, that's when Martin Luther did all of his work. But to really understand this problem, we've got to go back even further. We've got to go back a whole lot further, okay? And really we go back as far as even the beginnings of when the church started. It really... From the moment that God opened up his mouth and said anything to human beings, there have been false teachings that have arisen. Okay, and we've got some scriptures that we're going to look up. So, um, since the beginning, false teaching has tried to get into God's design. So, someone opened up to Genesis 3, 1 through 5, case you got Jeremiah 14, 14. Who's got that? It's got to be someone with a Bible. All right, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, uh, Romans uh, 16, 17, 18, Lo, uh, Logan, and Anthony, you want to take Galatians 1, 6 through 9? All right, so since the beginning, false teaching has tried to get into God's design. From the moment we know God spoke, from the moment we know God gave instruction, false teaching has tried to shoehorn its way in. From the very beginning, and to prove that, we look at the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. So in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, go ahead and read that for us whenever you're there, Casey. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, 
right there, while things are still good in the garden, false teaching tries to creep its way in. And it does. It works. It has success. Jeremiah 14, 14. Who had that one? Who had Jeremiah 14, 14? I know someone raised their hand. You got it? Go for it. So there were people in Jeremiah's day who were saying false prophecies, and God called them out. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Who had that one? Go for it. Right there at the beginning, beware of false prophets. And as he continues, he says, you're going to know them by their fruits, by what they say and by what they do. You're going to know who they are. If they're pointing you at something else, if they are telling you to go after anything else, you're going to know them. What about Romans 16, 17, and 18? By smooth talking, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Every false teacher who's ever really amassed any kind of a following, man, they were, they were really good at weaving a pretty convincing story. Every single one of them were. What about Galatians 1, 6 through 9? In other words, there weren't just false teachers in the Galatian church. There were false teachers who were finding followers. Guys, it's been, it's been a rampant thing ever since we've had teaching, we've had false teachers. And that's a scary and a terrifying thing. And what we're going to do is we're going to really zero in on what the false teaching looked like in the 16th century 
But like I said, we have to go back further than the 16th century. We looked at even at the very beginning and all the way through Jesus' time. And after Jesus was killed on a cross, after he rose again from the grave, after he ascended into heaven, after the church began, and after you see them going out and spreading the gospel, the church was unified. They loved Christ. And, and there were often false teachers that would come up and then the church would gather together and they would say, all right, this guy said this. Is that really what's in the Bible? And you had councils and you had people gathering together and saying, let's find out what's true from the Bible. And all these sorts of things happen. But if you fast forward to about the 12th century, so if we're in the 12th century, what hundred years? The what? The 1100s. At the 12th century, a teaching comes up and all of a sudden, people just lose their minds over it. And all of a sudden, the church, now not just somebody in the offshoots of the church, but the actual church itself, the Catholic church, which that word means universal, the Catholic church started teaching this problem, started teaching this issue. And they used it to gain so much power. So the question I need to ask is, what was the problem the church used to gain power? What was the doctrine that was used? It's going to be right there on your screen. So what was the problem the church used to gain power? Purgatory. There it is. All of a sudden, purgatory became one of the most, one of the most taught, one of the most... Uh, broadcasted teaching that the church had purgatory. And there is not a single, not a single teaching, there is not a single <laughs> directing towards a conversation about purgatory until the 12th century. It's not in any writings, it's not in any sermons that we have. Purgatory all of a sudden just came up out of nowhere in the 12th century. And of course, uh, the Catholic Church even today still t talks about purgatory. And they go back and they say, no, 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 it's always been there. It's always been there. It's in the Bible. Purgatory is in the Bible. It's always been there. So we need to ask the question first, is purgatory really a problem? Is it in the Bible? I'll throw up there some of the most supporting verses from uh, about purgatory, okay? So we're going to open up our Bibles to a couple of verses, and we're going to see if purgatory is there. So let's see the supporting verses for purgatory. 2 Maccabees 12, 41 through 46 is actually in this Bible. Do you have, do you have it in that one? It's in this one that I've got right here. This is not uh, a Bible that I would ever give you. This is a, a, this is a Catholic Bible. They add books to the Bible. All right? So we'll actually read that one last. But who wants to get 2 Timothy 1, 18? Who wants that? 2 Timothy 1.18. Go for it, Drewby Dooby Doo. What about 1 Corinthians 15.29? You got that, Anthony? What about Luke 16? Uh, I'll just explain Luke 16.9. You guys should know that from this past Sunday when Pastor Tim preached on it. But uh, we'll kind of walk through that here in just a little bit. So who's got 2 Timothy 1.18? That's it. Like, that's, that's it. That's actually the verse they say speaks to purgatory. Like, that's it. So, guys, 
I'm making a mockery of that because it's not there. Read it again for us, Drew. Let's, let's hear, let's hear that verse. Let's hear it. That's it. So if you're doing this on number, huh? Then understand you're in the same boat that I was because when I read that, when I looked at it, I was like, huh? How does that speak to purgatory? But that's one of the big ones for him. I probably, if I had really dug in, I probably should have looked at context and tried to dive in and look and see what all's going on and everything like that. But I, and I did a little perusing, but I didn't see it. I didn't see it at all. What about 1 Corinthians 15, 29? This one's a little better. All right. So this one talks about being baptized on behalf of the dead. Now, for the sake of, for the sake of just our conversation, I, I can't, I promise I will come back, I will grab that verse, and we're going to talk about what it means to be baptized for the dead. But understand what that doesn't mean. And just trust me right now, but please, please go back and look over it. I mean, really, go back and look over it in Scripture. But you can trust me right now. I'll go back and grab it. What it does not mean is that the dead are in some sort of limbo place, and if you get baptized for the dead, that it helps them out. Just understand that that's not what it's talking about. By the way, do you guys know what purgatory is? You know what they say purgatory is? What is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what they believe, and even guys like C.S. Lewis said he was okay with purgatory. Did you know that? Even C.S. Lewis said that, I don't really hate the idea of purgatory. He said, I don't mind the idea of having your sins expunged from you. What they believe is this, that there is a place in between earth and heaven, and the in-between place is purgatory. And when you die, your soul goes to purgatory and depending on how bad or good you are, you have to have your sins burned off of you for hundreds or thousands of years before you're allowed to go into heaven. So, your time in purgatory, it's not hell. Understand, you're on your way to, you're on your way to heaven, but to get there, you've got to get cleaned up first. You've got to have your sins burned off of you. Guys, it's not in the Bible. You've read two of the four that I've got there. Luke 16, 19 through 16, 26 is the story of the rich man, Lazarus, which Tim, Pastor Tim preached this past Sunday. And in that, there's a story where the rich man is in torment in Sheol in the grave in Hades. And Lazarus is by Abraham in Abraham's bosom. And he looks over at the rich man, and the rich man can look over at Lazarus, and, and there's this interaction that they have, and they say, that's it, that's purgatory. That 
doesn't work under any scrutiny. Really the only verse they've got, the only verses they've got that really kind of help us understand about purgatory or about doing something for people while they're dead, really, it comes from a portion of the Apocrypha, which are the books that are added to um, the Bible and the Catholic Bible. But in 2 Maccabees 12, 41 through 46, it says this, So they all bless the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge who reveals the things that are hidden. And they turn to supplication, praying that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened as the result of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if we were not expecting that those who had fallen, that means dead people, would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. Pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement, atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sins. And what that's talking about is a man was able to do something to bring atonement for dead people. You cannot take that one verse. That one verse does talk about maybe there's a place that you go to where you can, in between heaven, where you still can get some salvation. But you have to go outside of the Bible to find it. You have to go outside the Bible. So, does the Bible support purgatory? I'm going to tell you, I am convinced the answer to that question is a resounding no. No, it does not. So, the question has to be asked, well, if it's not in the Bible, how did the church get away with teaching something that wasn't in Scripture, all right? And that's the next question. How did the church get away with this? Well, here's how. The Bible was outlawed in personal homes. You could not have your own Bible, which, I mean, guys, y'all didn't even bring y'alls to church, some of y'all. The Bible was outlawed in personal homes, but also it could only be written in Latin. Now, here's the crazy thing about the Latin language. It's a dead language. And it was a dead language then. Nobody actually speaks Latin. There is no country, there is no area where the people there are just Latin-speaking people. In order to learn Latin, it was a very sophisticated, very high language. In order to learn Latin, you had to work for the church or even for governments. You had to go and you had to get this education in order to speak Latin. But no one actually spoke Latin in the street. So they outlaw the Bible in any language other than Latin. So if you don't know Latin, guess what you don't know? The Bible. And even if you did know Latin, even if you were an educated person and you did know Latin, guess what? You couldn't have your Bible anyway. Because personal homes couldn't have it. Only the church was holy enough to have the Bible. 
And so what they would do is they would get up there and they would read from the Bible, but they would read it in Latin. And you know who understood it? Nobody. Nobody. And as they would read it and no one would understand, then they would say, here's what that says, and they could make up whatever they wanted. Guys, this really was going down. This really happened. And it kind of blows my mind the gift and the treasure that we have in the Word of God and how so often we take it for granted. How so often we don't recognize that without this Word of God, chaos can go everywhere, even inside the church. Guys, this book is more than a book. This Bible is a treasure. It's an absolutely valuable and essential thing to our lives. So how did the church get away with it? Well, they outlawed the Bible in personal homes. And they made it only allowed in Latin. So, not only did purgatory arise, but other false teachings arose. And we're not going to look at all of them, but I do want to look at a few of them because there are some of them that are very egregious. So, what false teachings arose from the church's deception? We're going to look at three of them. The Pope, indulgences, and relics. Now, I won't belabor or I won't take time because I'll be quickly out of it why they believe the Pope is what they believe the Pope is or why they thought they could do indulgences and relics. Just understand this. What they believed is that the Pope was the vicar of Christ. Vicar. Vicar. The vicar of Christ. You guys know what it means to say you're the vicar of Christ? Yeah, what were you saying? Yeah, a person who speaks on behalf of God. A literal translation of that would be the mouthpiece of Christ. Yeah, but the speaker. I speak on behalf of Christ. And so what they honestly believe, they honestly believe this. They believe that if the Pope wore special clothes, and if he sat in a special chair, and if it was a special time, then what the Pope could do is he could speak a special message. And that special message was perfect, infallible, without error. If the Pope did all of those things, he could speak the literal words of God. That he was the mouthpiece of Christ. They honestly taught that. The indulgences were just pieces of paper. And the relics got nasty. And they still are. You're going to see a couple of them here in a little bit. But let's start with the idea of the Pope. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at just a few of the Popes. Just these, we're just going to look at three of them. Let's look at three of the Popes 
that came up during this time, okay? Just look at three of them. Now, these are people who they said are the vicar of Christ. These guys literally were the mouthpiece of Christ. These three guys were a part of that, okay? They said they spoke perfectly, that God in his great judgment brought them up because they were holy, righteous, and they and they alone could speak perfectly on behalf of Christ when they wore the special suit and when they sat in a special seat and when they had their special time. Let's look at John the 12th first. He was from 955 to 963. So this is even before the teaching of purgatory. He slept with his mother. He ran a harem. He gambled with offerings of pilgrims. And here's the thing. Here's another, he honestly did this. He, at the high altar of mass, which I know y'all don't necessarily know what that is. Just understand it's a really big and fancy table that they would take and have food. But at the high altar of mass, he actually toasted the devil. He gave a toast to the devil. That's John the 12th. Let's have a toast. Raise your glass. Let's all have a drink for the devil. He actually did that. Innocent III. His name is... Here's, okay, so this guy is Innocent III. Let's, let's hear what he did. He was in 1208... Innocent III declared death to all heretics. Anyone he said was a heretic, you die. And he gave privileges and awards to those who would kill a heretic. In fact, if you killed a heretic, you were guaranteed the highest place in heaven. Not very innocent. And Sixtus the Fourth. Wait, I'm sorry. It's actually Sixtus the Ninth. That's a typo up there. Sixtus the Ninth. From 1471 to 1484. Listen to this. He's the Pope who built the Sistine Chapel. You guys have, have seen pictures of the Sistine Chapel. It's beautiful. I mean, it really is beautiful. What all that they were able to put in there. I mean, there's not a bit of it that's biblical, but it's beautiful. The Pope, is the, he's the one who commissioned the building of the Sistine Chapel. He had several illegitimate sons. He licensed the brothels in Rome in order to tax them. So he made them legal so he could tax them so he could get money off of them. He introduced the idea of selling indulgences for the dead. He sanctioned the Inquisition, which was a slaughter, that launched the Spanish Inquisition. And in one year... In one city alone, because of the Inquisition, they burned 2,000 heretics. Those are just three of the popes that rose. Remember, these guys were viewed by the church as being the mouthpiece of Christ, as being perfect in their declarations, perfect in their teachings, perfect in their representation of the Lord.
So what about the indulgences? What is an indulgence? Do you guys know what an indulgence is? Some of you should. What is an indulgence? That's actually an indulgence from Rome. That's actually a, a picture of an indulgence from Rome. What's an indulgence? Yeah, so an indulgence is just a sheet of paper. That's it. It's just a sheet of paper. It's rolled up and it's got a, uh, a, a seal on it. It's got a very official uh, Roman uh, seal on it. And depending on who sealed it or who wrote it, that, that determined how expensive it was or who signed it, rather. But here's what an indulgence was. Anthony, I know you are an absolute pagan, awful, evil sinner. And you know what, Anthony? Because of your evil, awful, wicked sins, there's no way you don't spend at least like 15,000 years in purgatory. There's no way you don't. So you know what you can do? You know what you can do? Anthony, I'll tell you what. I've got a, I've got a good deal for you. If you pay me some money, I'll give you this indulgence, and it's going to knock off a hundred years, a hundred whole years in your time in purgatory. What you say? And you know what people would say? Yeah. Yeah. That's a bargain. Wait, I can get a two-for-one sale? I mean, they, they wanted to get these indulgences because, hey, it's easy. If I fork over some money, I get time taken off my sentence in purgatory. All of a sudden... Do you see how this idea of purgatory became a power grab? Yes. Tons and tons and tons of money off of it. Is that a hand for a question or a comment? Uh, did they, like, first make those like, buildings or something? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, St. Peter's Cathedral was a big one that was coming up, and so that's when uh, Tetzel comes around to start selling these special indulgences. We'll get more to him next week. But here's the thing. They've got these indulgences and like I said, uh, Sixtus the Ninth, uh, uh, let's see here. Da, da, da. No, not Sixtus the Ninth, but uh, yeah, Sixtus the Ninth. He's the one who says, hey, you can actually buy these, buy these indulgences, you can actually buy them for dead people. So, I have a loved one that's burning in purgatory right now. You know what? You can actually get 100 years taken off their time if you come and buy this indulgence. This one's written so it'll help your, your aunt. Or this one's written for your grandmother. Or this one's written for your father who's in purgatory right now. Come, buy this indulgence and, and they can get 100 years knocked off. Or, or sometimes if you really found someone who was really official... I mean, you could get like 500 years knocked off or like 1,000. And here's the thing. We don't know how long they're actually there. I mean, listen. I mean, some of us, all of us have those aunts or uncles where we're like, ooh, they were tough. They were tough. And sometimes I say that and go, ooh, Uncle Joe was a scallywag. He was a terrible person. He's definitely in purgatory for a long time. I better go buy a couple of these and maybe try and knock off some. And all of a sudden, money starts pouring into the Roman Catholic Church. All of a sudden, they start being able to amass fortunes all over a sheet of paper. 
that's not bad enough. They also found a way to make money off of relics. <clears throat> so what's a relic? I'm glad you asked. These are some disgusting ones. These are, so there's two of them up there. There's the Shroud of Turin. Do you guys know what the Shroud of Turin is? They believe that the Shroud of Turin is the shroud that was laying on Jesus' body when Jesus rose from the grave. And they say that there, the power of his resurrection force actually burned or etched his image into the shroud. Do you guys see the image that's on there? Do you guys see that? Do you guys see how they say that's Jesus' face? They say that's actually Jesus' face. All right? Do you guys see it? There's the heart of St. Camelus. That's actually a petrified heart in there. There was actually um, Pope Francis in 2015. They had a relic that was like petrified blood of some saint. I can't remember who it was, but petrified blood of some saint. And Pope Francis actually went up there. I believe it was Pope Francis in 2015. Is that right? He went up to this petrified blood relic and he kissed the container and they said that that petrified blood actually became liquid again. A modern day miracle. So what's the deal with the relics? Well, here's the thing they said. They said, listen, the Shroud of Turin would be a big one, or the heart of St. Camelus, that would be a big one. Listen, if you pay money, and if you go, and if you pray before those relics, you're going to have time knocked off your sentence in purgatory. They taught that. Guys, when we went to New Orleans a couple of years ago, we went into a Catholic, uh, Catholic cathedral. And there were candles burning everywhere. Now, <laughs> yes, so here's the thing. I had Trent Gillum with me there. And if you don't know Trent, then you, this, this story won't quite grab you quite as much. But Trent was just, what are all these candles? And he was walking up to the candles. You could pay money, pay money to have a candle lit. And what they believed, honestly, is that there, you had loved ones in purgatory. If you go up there and if you pay to have a candle lit, then as long as that candle is burning... It's helping your loved one who's in purgatory. You gotta have a can and I walked up to Trent and I said, Trent, I swear, if you blow out one of those candles, we're gonna be in so much trouble. And I almost was like, Come here, son. I almost I wanted to hold his hand all through the cathedral because I didn't want him to do any I didn't want him to do anything with those candles, all right. But they honestly believe that these relics can help you out in your time in purgatory. So I've got to hurry. I'm really out of time. But <clears throat> let me ask this question. How far do you think the church was willing to go to keep up the deception? Well, this is the story that will take us into next week. On July 6, 1415, Jan Hus was burned at the stake for his criticism of the Catholic Church. Guys, the church was willing to kill to keep this deception alive. Here's what Jan Hus said. Well, here's some of his teachings. Jan Hus said everybody deserves to have a Bible. Everybody should have a Bible. And for that, he was labeled a heretic. He also taught that it was God and God alone who could grant salvation through his son, Jesus. And for that, he was labeled a heretic. And so on July 6, 14, 15... They burned Jan Hus at the stake. You guys know what that means to burn someone at the stake? That's a picture of him right there. 
It means they tied him up on a wood pile and they lit the wood that he was standing on on fire and it burned him alive. It burned him alive. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jan Hus knew, he knew he wasn't going to make it. And so in a lot of his writings, he wrote kind of these, these thoughts that, listen, one day, I mean, one day someone's going to be able to stand up to, to it. I mean, someday, the, the, the Lord's not always going to be silent about this. Someday someone's going to be able to stand up to him. He knew that they were going to get him. And when they did get him, they burned him alive. And while he was standing there on the stake, the legend has it. By the way, the, the word hus means goose. Imagine going through high school with that name. Almost as bad as... But as he's standing up there, legend has it that the bishop who's about to light the fire gives him one last chance. Will you recant? Will you turn aside from your teachings? And legend has it that he says, my goose is cooked. And it's right here. My goose is cooked, but in a century, you will have a swan which you can neither roast or boil. What I want to have happened there is I want that bishop, as he throws the torch on there, I wish he would have said, over my dead body. Because something happens in a hundred years that's pretty remarkable. A hundred years after he was killed, you've got this German monk named Martin Luther. You're going to hear a lot more of a story next week, but this German monk named Martin Luther is brilliant. And he's been told to teach the Bible. Now, he had never had access to the Bible before. He had never been given the opportunity to teach it. And as he is walking through the Scriptures, he's going through Psalms, he's going through Galatians, he gets to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I want to end with these verses. I want to end with these verses. Because Martin Luther, as he's reading this in his own writings about his first encounter with these verses, he said, I didn't need to read another sentence because all of a sudden I understood the gospel. As he was reading the Bible, he comes to these verses which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden he says, wait, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel? That's the power of God for salvation. It's not the Pope. It's not relics and indulgences. It's not the church. It's not candles. It's not praying the right things. It's salvation to everyone who believes. 
Not to everyone who bows before a petrified heart. Wait, for in the Gospel is the righteousness of God from faith for faith? Faith? Not doing what the church tells me to do, but by faith in the Gospel, the righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, this Word of God opens up to Luther a world to where he's confronted with that first question I ask you. What do you do if the church is teaching you to follow things that aren't in the Bible? For the first time, Luther is confronted with that reality. And Luther is saved by reading the Scripture in the year 1515. And two years later, he starts a fight with the church. The reason why I wish that guy, when he burned Jan Hus, the reason why I say I wish he would have said, over my dead body, is because when Martin Luther was ordained as a teacher, as a minister, he was ordained in a cathedral that had catacombs underneath it. It just so happens that the leading bishop who burned Jan Hus at the stake was in the catacombs directly underneath where Martin Luther was ordained. I want so badly for him to say over my dead body because Luther started a fight with the church. Absolutely. Absolutely has a sense of humor. I want it to be true. I can't find it in any, in any writings. But I want him to have said it because it just would be hilarious. But you need to understand this, guys. Luther, from the Scripture, was confronted with that question. What do I do? Because the church is teaching false things. What do I do? And next week we'll look at his life and we'll talk about what Luther did. Let me pray for us. And we're going to sing to our very great and wonderful God. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here, and we praise you for your word and for the opportunity we have to read your word. And we ask that we wouldn't take it for granted, but that, Lord, we would recognize it as the treasure that it is, that only, only in your word can we find a true account of the gospel. Only in your scripture can we know the things that you have for us while here on this earth. And I pray that you would use our study in the Reformation to draw us closer to you, to draw us closer to each other, and to strive to ask the hard question, what do we do with this gospel that's been given to us? It's in your son's name, Jesus, we do ask these things and for his sake. Amen.